You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Acres and acres of reclaimed land nestled in a scenic mountain valley, site of the newly formed Lost River Lake. You'll find swimming, sailing, snorkeling. There's something strange in the water at Lost River Lake. Something you can't see, something you can't feel, until it's too late. Started in a Texas pond. They were unleashed into America's waterways to churn quiet streams into rivers of living death. Keep your hand out of the water. Oh, what's wrong with the water? Dead! Stay back! Dead! Stay back! The world of carnivorous fish. Piranha, the deadliest man-eaters of all. In schools of hundreds, they attack and devour anything that moves with razor-sharp teeth that can strip a man to the bone in less than a minute. There'll be no way to contain them. They'll be able to swim up every river system in the country. There's a school of piranha heading straight downstream toward your resort. Excuse me, I'm on a phone. There's a piranha. I thought I told you not even to say that word. But the piranhas. What about the piranhas? They're eating the guests, sir. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. We open the show with a clip from the trailer from the 1978 film Piranha. Following on the success of Jaws, several other animal terror films followed in quick succession, including Orca, Blood Beach, Alligator, and of course, Piranha. As you may have gathered from that clip, this was pretty much drive-in theater, ichthysploitation fare. But where did they get the idea that these fish were so dangerous? In 1912, former President Teddy Roosevelt went on an expedition up the Amazon River. It was a disaster of a trip, but he did write a book about his exploits. There's a story that says while he was in Brazil, some locals had sequestered some piranha in a pool and starved them. They then drove a wounded, sick cow into the water, and the fish frenzied and devoured it. This story was researched by Herbert R. Axelrod, and I've put a link in the show notes. But the point is that if the story is true, it's in no way a representation of piranha behavior. But based on the references in Roosevelt's book, regardless of whether this anecdote is true, the former president came away with the impression that the fish was an absolute terror. By his account, if you go into the water bleeding and piranha are present, you're in terrible peril. The truth? Well, that's more complicated. Let's talk with someone who knows about these fish as we're joined by Matthew Coleman of the University of Michigan's Paleontology Museum in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. Monster Talk. Welcoming to Monster Talk for the first time, we have Matthew Coleman, who is a research fellow at the Paleontology Museum at the College of Literature, Science, and Arts at the University of Michigan. And tonight, we're going to be talking about piranha. Yay. I, I We've guess, had lots of requests for this. Yeah, that's it. Really? I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you surprised? No. Monstrous <laughs> fish. I mean, I guess, like, I guess not. I mean, you know, when you always say piranhas, I don't know, like, sometimes I get folks who are, like, you know, you see the light, like they've clearly seen a bad, like B-rate sci-fi film about piranhas. And they're like, oh yeah. And then there's times where I'll talk about piranhas to kids and they're just like, nah, yeah, cool. You know, it's really a mixed bag. I So like I grew up in the seventies as a kid, I remember seeing piranhas on adventure shows and it was always somebody goes in the water and then, you know, cut back to the people on the shore watching in horror, you know, and then a bony hand will come out of the water or something. So <laughs> Quite monstrous. But, you know, it turned out that, like, neither piranha nor quicksand actually turned out to be a big danger in my life. I kind of expected that they would be both, but they weren't. So, (laughs) I know normally we always start talking about, um, you know, how did you become interested in the topic that we're going to discuss? But since Mm -hmm. the topic we're talking about is a kind of fish, I'm going to ask a harder question. Oh, okay. What's a fish? (laughs) this is this is the question that all good like ichthyologists or fish biologists ask their students like the very first day of fish biology class and and like inevitably gets groans right it's also the thing that we always give each other crap about like when well like if you're at a conference when you're talking to like mammologists or folks who study birds thing you know any of the other groups of things that aren't fishes will always respond with, oh, well, birds are just fish too. And I'll sort of explain what I mean by that in a bit. But fish is this sort of like amorphous term in some ways, partly because of how the specific 
ways that biologists use terms to like refer to things. And so a fish is kind of a messy thing. It, sometimes they're scaled, sometimes they're not. Almost all of them live in the, the water, but a lot of them can live out on land too. A lot of them breathe with gills. Some fishes don't need to use their gills at all. Some fishes use, um, you know, lungs. Other fishes use gas bladder to breathe. But, you know, the thing that kind of unites all fishes is that they have a bony backbone. Not all of them have jaws. Strangely enough, if you think about things like lampreys and hagfishes, they don't have jaws. It's, it's just this kind of uh, fish is this like colloquial box that we kind of toss all these things like into. But if we want to use fish from a phylogenetic perspective, which is just kind of the fancy way that we refer to the study of how different species and groups of species relate to each other through evolutionary time. If you consider that the earliest vertebrates, things with backbones, were fish and everything else is descendant from a fish-like ancestor, everything else that has a backbone, be it a dog or a starling or a newt or a toad, is phylogenetically speaking, a fish. So phylogenetics is kind of the study of the interrelationships of, um, of species. And so have you ever seen like a diagram before where you see, you know, they're like referred to as trees and there are these lines that stem away from like a central branch and it shows how the species like relate to each other. I have so, so many friends with those Darwin treat tattoos. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. So that's like, that's that tree, that phylogeny is really sort of, you know, the, the basis of what an evolutionary biologist has to keep in their head when they're examining like any of the other things that we're, you know, stoked about, like, you know, how things move or how things eat or what things eat. That schematic is kind of the basis by which we kind of like organize our thoughts and make our like interpretations. I guess we'll go from the, the general question to the specific question. Yeah. So what is a piranha? And can you tell us a little bit about what makes it so different from other kinds of fish? Yeah, that's great. So piranhas are part of this big group of primary freshwater fishes called carassiforms. And so carassiforms, if you go to like a Petco or PetSmart and uh, you see any of the little kind of like colorful, like tetra type fishes. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So like neons, stuff like that like bleeding hearts, those are all in the same uh, group, like what we would call like a clade. And so there's, I think, around a thousand species of carassiforms, probably a ton that we haven't described or haven't found yet. And so um, piranhas belong to to like a family within that group um, called Sarasalmidae, which is kind of, an, kind of a neat name. I don't know if you like words or not, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I we, we, we do, like we do. No, no, we do. We like, we like them a lot. We do, we do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, like salmo comes from exactly what you would think the salmon, and Sarah comes. Um, Sarah is the same root as like serrated, and so piranhas and things that relate to piranhas have this uh, serrated keel. So if you look at like the belly of the fish, um, they have these really sharp kind of uh, serrated spines that run along the bottom of the fish. Really? And uh, yeah, yeah, they're like bony. Um, I don't know. Like if you saw a Mad Max, like that's what I think about when I think of these <laughs> these keels. It's like this serrated, like if you strapped a, a bunch of knife blades to your chest and then, you know, like ran around with that. Um, <laughs> like that's where they get that name. That is a feature that defines the family. Interesting. Yeah. I had actually did a little reading before 
the interview and and had read about them being related to salmon. Are are, are they the most dangerous salmon? <laughs> They're not that closely related. Um, you know, okay, yeah, I've never heard salmon. that. But, but uh, that name stems from I think Linnaeus, right? So he's the guy that you know dreamt up the whole two names the bi- binomial nomenclature. <laughs> yep, yep. And it's funny when a lot of Europeans went to explore the new world or, well, I think in his case, maybe the specimens were shipped back to him. You know, they just used names for what they already knew. And then they just slapped a new, you know, name on it. So, you know, the best thing about this is like, you know, whenever, whenever German biologists would go abroad, everything was named like a, like a blank pig or a blank mouse, you know, so you have a bunch of things that are, you know, something schwein. And uh, so I think they just tended to, to to reuse words that we already knew. And I think that that's why they have it. Yeah. The, because every time we talk about fish, I think this comes up where you've got because of I think about convergent evolution where you get animals that look the same. And back then they didn't know about genetics. So I imagine there's probably some pretty big changes going. I mean, when you compare the molecular and, and genetic relationship between animals versus how they look appearance wise that's got to be confusing from these old names done way back when compared to now when we have a better idea of what's actually closer related oh yeah the amount of time biologists just spend simply trying to organize things and to name things in a way that makes it easier to know who's like related to who we spend a you know a huge amount of time just doing that. And it's so important because that's the foundation of everything else, right? Like, you know, for people like me who do more science for the sake of science, if I'm interested in the evolution of one structure or some, you know, behavior, um, knowing how species like relate to each other lets me infer like, okay, well, you know, what evolved first, the, you know, piranhas eating meat or eating plants. And along the same side too, if you're interested in conserving those species, you really can't conserve something that doesn't have a name, right? Mm-hmm. And so right. just knowing what's out there and describing it is super important to to really every other branch of science, or at least at least like within biology. Yeah. Absolutely. So in terms of piranhas and where you could find them, I think a lot of people think that they're exotic uh, and that you're not going to find them mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some idea? But at the same time, I've heard they can be found in some unexpected places too. So yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about uh, where piranhas are found. Yeah. So piranhas are only found, you know, from like a natural standpoint from South America. Um, okay. And they've been not so much piranhas, but their relatives, the Pacus um, have been introduced pretty much worldwide at this point. So they're, you know, the biggest fishes in the Amazon are some of the biggest um, like species they taste delicious and they're easy to farm. And so there are pakus in Southeast Asia. They're introduced and established in parts of Florida. And piranhas are, you know, people are a little bit more like wary of them. And I actually checked today to see I'm like originally from Florida and all good things end up in that state. (laughs) And by things I mean fish. And there have been a bunch of piranha introductions to Florida, but it doesn't seem like any of them have taken root. Whereas the Pacus definitely are there and like breeding 
in some spots. Now, if you've if you've been on the internet, you may have seen pakus because they also have what look like they're the, they look like they have human teeth, kind of. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. creepy. Like it, it is a bit, but <laughs> <laughs> they're like I'll let you guys in on a on sort of a thing, which is pakus are way more impressive than piranhas in my mind, and I'm sure we can get to that in like a bit, but. They are super cool. I mean, piranhas are cool, but pakus are way more neat. They just don't have movies about them. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, they've got. Um... <laughs> I was thinking of the Pokemon, but that's uh, that's <laughs> Pikachu, not Pakachu. Sorry. You know, just... <laughs> <That's scary. laughs> I mean, that would be super cool if you could like blend the two together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pakachu. I don't. Yeah. Know. But you really don't want any like you don't want fish in your pockets or your pants. So yeah, maybe it's like, especially that kind. Even yeah. if you can throw them out and have them fight, you know. So okay. yeah, we we have done uh, shows too on. Um, creatures that have been introduced to florida like pythons and cane mm-hmm. toads and yeah so yeah florida comes up a lot yeah on the show. yeah i mean <laughs> with, the, with the ball python and everything else you just the last thing we need <laughs> let, <laughs> let's let's just make the everglades a no-go zone right <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> all right so and this is one of those uh, evolutionary questions is do, do we know historically when and where the first piranha emerged in the fossil record yeah, so what's neat is that is a little bit contentious. So maybe not so much for piranhas, but for that whole group, the the pakus and the piranhas. So piranhas in some form have been around for a little bit less than 20 million years. So they're a pretty recent thing. And really the piranhas that you and I would recognize today are even more young than that. Um, so, you know, they're they're from five to 10 million years ago. And so to kind of put that into perspective a little bit, the Amazon wasn't really like the river that it is today up until like maybe 10 million years ago. So, it, you know, piranhas may very well have sort of been successful in, in the sort of more like riverine like environment that the Amazon is now, whereas before it was a bit more swampy further back, it was more of like an inland sea. And so piranhas as they are now are pretty like recent, you know, group, but pakus again, because they're so cool have been around for at least like 40 to 50. And so there's some really like, I mean, they're just a great group. Like I can gush about. So so from a tree perspective, the Pakus are cousins of the piranha? Is that basically? Or like, how, how are they related? Or, or yeah. do we know? I mean, if they're older, are they ancestors? So you could say that piranhas stem from a Paku-like ancestor. Okay. So they're kind of like us with the apes, where we, had, we have some common ancestor back there somewhere. Yeah. 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 And so the interesting thing is there is, uh, unlike a lot of carassiforms, there are some pretty good fossil piranhas. Not really of the whole fish. So generally, things don't fossilize well in like the tropics, usually because they get, you know, eaten and torn torn apart or mm-hmm. rot like really fast before they get a chance, you know, to turn into a fossil. But because piranhas are so robust and they have these kind of big, you know, very bony jaws and big, robust teeth, the teeth preserve really, really well. And so we actually have piranha fossils from, you know, the 15 to 20 million year mark. But we only have part of one jaw and the teeth. 
and it has this ridiculous name of Mega Piranha. So we don't know much about it. It's probably the size of a large dog, you know, like a Labrador. But the interesting thing is it's teeth. And, you know, I'm sort of going to toot my own horn here a bit. We've been doing some studies on how well those teeth work in denting flesh or fruit. And it turns out that their teeth look uh, like, at least to me, and there's folks who would not agree with this, they probably... I want to say there's a good chance that that thing ate fruit and seeds, not actually meat. Um, We can talk a little bit more about the evolution of diets in piranhas. But again, since Paku's majority eat plants and piranhas stem from a Paku-like ancestor, one of the things that we've proposed is that the ancestral piranha ate some sort of mixture of plant and flesh, you know, for prey. Mm -hmm. Well, and you predicted our next question. Uh, a following question as well, which is to ask about the typical piranha diet. So mm-hmm. I guess for modern piranhas, well, mm-hmm. what is that like? And uh, how can people get your piranha diet book? That's what uh, a lot of people are sort of <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. Something really sink your teeth into. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the cool thing about piranha diets is they're a lot more varied than most people would think. So the interesting thing is within piranhas, the first group of piranhas to sort of split off from the rest Two of them uh, grew up to eat basically majority, uh, you know, plants, um, seeds and fruit. And then one of those things subsists on scales uh, and slime its whole life. And so it tends to be that piranhas, if you were to, you know, just like randomly stick your hand into a tank like full of piranhas and pull out a species, which I wouldn't say is the best idea. You know, there's a pretty good chance that what you would pick would either eat fins, scales and slime it would eat whole fishes or parts of fishes, or it would eat some combo of, you know, maybe some fins and scales, but usually a lot of plant parts. Um, so seeds, leaves, fruit. And what's interesting is that there's been several, what we would say, like reversals back to feeding on plants in even like younger prop species. So, and I should say too, that, you know, assessing diet in animals is really hard because most things, if you dangle it in a tank, the fish will try to eat it. Right. (laughs) And, uh, a lot of piranhas, even the ones that we would consider to be, you know, majority feeding on meat and stuff, if there's fruit available, they eat it. And so people don't, I think, recognize how often piranhas will like include fruits and seeds and stuff into what they eat. So, Along the Amazon, are there lots of fruit-bearing plants? I mean, oh yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, is that some of the seed distribution involve like river? Is that, I mean, is that, are the plants evolved to drop their fruit into the water? Is that they are? Yeah. Wow, so, surprising. That's really cool. I'm yeah, learning so, a lot on this call. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. loving it. Okay, this is great. Good. Yeah. So what's really neat is it's estimated that in some places. Pacus and piranhas distribute about 40% of the like available seeds of the plants that are in that community. Wow. Um, and it's really neat. There's been some really, really cool work shown by Sandra Correa, who's at University of Mississippi, I believe. And she's done some really interesting work showing this kind of tight coevolution between the fish and the plants. And the plants that depend on fishes to sort of distribute their seeds have fruits that um, are fleshy. They're prone to sort of float and not sink. So the fish have time to get to it. And what's really, really cool is if you go to the Amazon and, you know, the best thing to do if you ever want to find something in the Amazon is 
talk to the folks who like live there. And so if you go out with, you know, any of the like indigenous folks and you go and fish for these things, um, oftentimes what you'll do is you'll sit in a canoe and you'll take your oar and you'll slap it on the water. And that attracts pakus because it's thought that that sound imitates what fruit falling in the rivers. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, and you can actually put fruit at the end of the hook and catch the fish. Like they're definitely, you know, they're great. I love them to death. They're not very bright, but, uh, well, I mean, I, I have to ask what, what, what's the smartest fish? <laughs> oh, I, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> I guess I could say phylogenetically speaking, we're fish. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, that. <laughs> so, are we that like, smart? I mean, I, mean, I uh, on the one hand, sure I, I smarter whales. Yeah. But. I don't, I can't think <laughs> of any clever fish yet. I mean, when you go fishing, they sometimes seem pretty clever, you know? So yeah. I know that we have a lot of little fish that are really skilled at taking a worm off a hook without taking oh, yeah. the hook. It's really impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say stingrays are pretty smart. I used to work with rays and they're very stubborn, which I think is usually attached to being smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so there's there's some more interesting stuff about seed dispersal. There's also been some great work that's shown that some of the, the the seeds won't even start to germinate to grow unless they've been passed through the gut of the fish, which is super cool. That is, and yeah. So, like, and what I find so impressive about all of this is, well, like a few things. So one, pakus arose around the same time that a lot of the, the fruiting plants in the Amazon did. Um, so about 60 to 40. Um, and... What I find so cool about this from like a biology and sociology standpoint is papus and piranhas are like a primary food fish throughout the Amazon and other parts of South America, right? Like they're delicious. They're not that hard to catch and they're like abundant. And so people depend on the fish for food. And what's interesting is some of the fruits that uh, papus spread are important for things like, uh, you know, for building stuff you know so the rubber tree which we used to get latex is from right that's actually mm -hmm. spread by the fishes wow and there are even a few um plants that um are part of like the ayahuasca herb like melange go on spread by the fishes too. <laughs> <laughs> and so what i find so cool about this is like this like these fishes are so intertwined with the lives of the folks who live along the rivers, right? They're like contributing to, you know, the social parts of what folks are doing with respect to, you know, their beliefs and things like that. Oh, is it, so you say it gives them a net gain? <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky. I love it. Yeah. I guess there's a seed of truth in that. <laughs> um. <laughs> Ganging up on me. <laughs> Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost. 
and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But yeah, you know, like it provides for where folks live. It provides them the stuff that they need, you know, to, to practice their beliefs and these fishes feed them too. And so they're a really important part of, you know, the ecosystem. Wow. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think they're so cool. If I haven't said that enough. And they, they live together, the Paco and the Piranha. Yep. So, but we talked about the Piranha diet, but I assume that would also mean it includes Paco. Like if they're an opportunity eater or do they live and live with their cousins? How does that work? Great question. So piranhas are jerks, man. Like, we know that much. <laughs> I, it's, it's hard to describe. Like when you have them in tanks, they're super skittish, but there are these great studies by Ivan Sizima. He's a professor at, um, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he would just snorkel with piranhas and just kind of watch them doing the things that they do. And I think the best word that kind of describes them is goons. Like they're sort of like a roving gang of, I guess, because I spent so much time in Toronto, I think of them as like sort of like the hockey guys that are out <laughs> you know, kind of like trying to find a fight. Yeah. And so what's so cool is they'll kind of like stock stuff and wait for it to be, you know, for its back to be turned. And then they'll just like run o- over and bite p- parts of their fins off. And in fact, most piranhas, when they're like young, that's kind of how they eat. They're not really a predator as much as sort of like a parasite. Um, And they're kind of Mm. grazing on all the other fishes that are around. In fact, there's, there's some work that's kind of shown. um, So I'm sure y'all have seen this where, have you ever seen a fish where on the tail fin, there's like a big black spot? Like an Uh, eye. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So in some like South American freshwater fishes, um, it's thought that that eye, that false eye, evolved on the tails of things to deter piranhas from biting their tails off. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. And my favorite one, remember in that group that I said is the first to sort of branch off from the rest of piranhas and the majority Wait, of them. Th- eat- th- so, oh, yeah. it doesn't quite work, but a Paku dot. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, like there's actually one of the Paku species 
mimics a piranha species when they're young because they like the theory being that things won't screw with it because it looks like <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean some of them they're just these roving little bands of goons and uh that really er- like early diverging group of piranhas there's one in there called like the wimple piranha and they have this kind of like sort of like a jay leno chin like this oh yeah yeah (laughs) they can drop that jaw down 180 degrees and then they just run into the sides of other fishes and scrape their scales off that's actually how jay leno also eats it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) i would yeah i mean i'm not sure if i would be that surprised and that big chin, we think, actually kind of helps them pry off the scale. And so when I've CT scanned these things, I found 16 scales in the stomachs of one of these like specimens. And each of those scales was bigger than the orbit, like bigger than the eye socket of the fish. And it had 16 of them stuffed in its stomach. And so each of those scales was 90% the height of the mouth opened at its widest. Holy cow. Which is bizarre, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I've, I've heard a lot about, and you already talked a little bit about this, um, but I've heard a lot about how they attack and so that they do things like they'll circle, you know, whatever it is that they're wanting to eat in, in a, a group. Can you tell uh-huh. us a little bit more about some of their kind of techniques for attacking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Some piranhas um, are solitary, others school, um, some form like smaller kind of little packs, like four or five piranhas. One thing that that seems to be kind of a unifying theme is that if they can attack something from behind and usually behind and beneath. Um, so you'll find a lot like if you go to any kind of like museum collection, you pull some fishes out of jars. I would say that you'd get maybe 15 fishes in before you found a fish specimen in a collection that has a perfect circular bite mark out of the anal fin or off or like out of the tail. And that's entirely from piranhas. So generally they'll always sort of strike from there. And there's, again, Ivan Sazima's stuff cracks me up because there's this photo of this really uh, large, like nasty fish called Aymara. They're called like wolf fish. And they're mean. Like, this is the thing you don't want to get bitten by when we're in the field. And behind it is this piranha that is, you know, a, a, an eighth the size of this fish. And it sees the piranha. And I guess it realizes it can't do anything about it. And all the piranha is staring at is this thing's tail. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's basically just committed to itself. That, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to take a little bite out of me. And it's doing the, the little cartoon mm. thing where... The wolf looks at the sheep and then its head, you see a big roast dinner already made out. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't want to anthropomorphize it too much, but I just think of a lot of piranhas as instead of being this like really voracious predator, as just kind of being like a big annoying mosquito to like a lot of fishes, especially when they're small, because they're just there like constantly trying to nip off scales, slime and fins. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, if you remember back to what they're called, that serrated keel that runs along the belly, we did a study on that and found out that I think in something like 75% of the specimens that we like looked at, it's damaged. And where that keel runs is along the belly of the piranha, just in front of the anal fin. And so we really think that it's probably there to discourage 
confamilial snack. Yeah, a little, like, you know, like let's call a little it interspecies thing. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's damaged a lot. You'll find them with little holes. Um, I found piranhas with whole parts of it ripped off, and it's clearly been healed. Uh, the flesh is healed, but the keel, the bone hasn't grown back. And so to, to get back to the original question of whether or not do they, do they sort of feed on each other, um, they definitely do. I, I, I do think piranhas try their best not to hit each other by accident. But I also think that if you look at any other Karasiform, you know, that sort of bigger group of freshwater species that piranhas belong to, they all kind of bite each other. I mean, that's kind of how they like maintain dominance. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. And I just think piranhas have bigger teeth. And so when you have this like negotiation with your schoolmate about who's going to be top fish, it, it just ends up a little bit more bloody if you're a piranha. <laughs> um, well, you know what you, this actually, I've never thought about this before. So I'm very excited about this. The, mm-hmm. the, if within a single school that like, I could see where it would be ev- evolutionary advantageous to, you know, cooperate. I wouldn't call it altruism, yeah. but, but maybe don't bite each other. Right. But yeah. if a school has a dominance structure and then they run into another school, do they see those oh. foreign schools as, as competitors? Do they fight? You mean like, is there like a sharks versus the jets? Like, yeah, yeah. Of, well, <laughs> yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. yeah. That's a great question that I did not have the answer to. The interesting, one of the interesting things that sets piranhas apart from pakus is that they vo- vocalize, they make sounds mm-hmm. and they communicate. And those sounds vary depending on. Can I guess with those teeth, it sounds something like cha cha cha. Is that what they say? <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they actually chatter with their teeth to some extent. Yeah. Um, they also drum their swim bladder to make a, uh, to make a sound. So there's in a lot of different kinds of fishes, there are uh, connections to the air bladder or the gas bladder that they can strum against. And that makes a certain sort of like a, uh, I don't know how you would describe it. Just kind of like a, like a rhythmic grunting. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably the most disgusting way I've I could have thought to you know, pitch that. <laughs> um, but they definitely commu- communicate, and so they'll definitely communicate about t- territory. I don't know what happens when two schools meet um, from opposite sides of the river. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to find that out. That w- please let me know if anyone yeah. does that study. I would really love to know. So I, it's funny because I've spent fifty two years not caring, but now I got to know. I I do think that brings up an interesting point in that, like one of the reasons I chose to study piranhas is, is because we know a lot about them compared to a lot of other South American freshwater things. It's anything that lives in the water is going to be harder to observe than you know the antelope that's on the savanna. And anything that lives in waters of the Amazon that are remote and honestly hard to see through, like parts of the Amazon are clear, parts are very not clear. It's not a reef. You can't dive on it. It's harder to observe things when you can't see six inches from your face, right? And so uh, there's still a ton that we don't know, like about these things. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm just thinking about you talking about the scientists that would snorkel with them. Uh And it's just making me think about, I I guess, one of the biggest questions that we have for this show is asking about piranhas and attacking humans. I mean, I think from movies and and our kind of folkloric understanding of piranhas, do they often attack humans? Are they 
a fish that we should be scared of as much as we seem to be. So again, that same guy, Ivan Sazima, did these just wonderful studies on piranhas. And he delved into that too. And they basically did the first kind of scientific approach to understanding what piranha attacks on humans might look like. And of course, like, you know, the big feeding frenzy image of piranhas came about from, you know, uh, basically like Europeans going to the Amazon and getting told these stories. And the biggest thing that kind of vaulted that into the public eye is um, Teddy Roosevelt went to Brazil Mm -hmm. in 1913 or 14. He actually went with a Brazilian guy whose last name I think was Rondon, who was the first one to discover the headwaters of the Amazon, I think. And so they went on an expedition, collected a bunch of specimens. And at some point, one of the, you know, towns that they like went to staged this thing where they like took a cow and threw it in a pool full of, you know, like starving prongs. And that image is kind of stuck with us since, right? That's what you see in those B-rate sci-fi films. That's, that's mm-hmm. what you hear. But it seems like the science on that is pretty much dead set that like most people don't, you know, your chance of getting attacked by a piranha, unless you're doing something really dumb, is pretty slim. I've swam with piranhas a bunch of times. You don't even know that they're there. And again, the work that Sazima did showed that most people who have gotten attacked get attacked because they stumble into the nests where these things are. So kind of an interesting thing is piranha moms and dads guard their eggs, um, at least for the first few days that the eggs are developing. Um, I think first it's both parents and then it's just the dad. And so uh, Brazil, uh, the government has had this tendency over the past like 20 years to build more and more dams. And a consequence of that is they end up, um, you know, behind the dam, you get this big lake and the lake attracts kind of floating plants and stuff. Piranhas like to sort of dig little pits or um, hang their eggs on the uh, roots of those plants. And lakes also attract people who want to go bathing. And so what they found is the more of these lakes that were around, people were bathing at the nice time of year when they would want to go swimming. And that's also when the piranhas were breeding. And so most people were getting like single bites, usually on their feet, from people stumbling into nests and the piranhas being like, hey, you just stepped on all my kids. (laughs) You know? So, you know, the other thing is that there's lots of reports of um, of piranhas feeding on uh, on dead bodies. Um, And so people who... Um, you know, unfortunately had had drowned and fallen into uh, the, the river and weren't like recovered for a few days. A lot of times they're skeletonized. I bet um, they are. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. I would and, expect and, that. And honestly, that, like, I would expect that without piranha. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And I think that that actually speaks, you know, maybe in a morbid way, but also I think in sort of a sort of a holistic way of, of, the, of another important job that those fishes play is they also play the role of scavenger. You know, they're the hyenas on the Savannah. They're cleaning up things that are dead and dying. That's a really good analogy. I think. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you think I'm just thinking just in terms of jaw strength, you know, hyenas are famous for being Mm -hmm. like this. I think they're the strongest jawed mammal. I believe that's true. Uh, It's incredible bite force. I I think you're right. I have a massive like science crush on hyenas so <laughs> yeah yeah we don't want to go there i mean because i i get very excited about weird 
animal genitalia, as Karen will attest to. With, oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I'm still reeling. And, I'm and still, listeners. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners are tired of me saying. And it, roosters don't have penises because I, I'm still kind of shocked by that. So, yeah. Anyway. All right. Glad you inserted that. I, yeah. I wanted to make sure it's actually part of our intro now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, oh, this, this does tell us that Teddy Roosevelt because uh, he's also responsible for the, the the one really famous Bigfoot legend of a of a killer Bigfoot. Uh, so, oh. so he tells this legendary story <laughs> about these two trappers going out and running into Bigfoot territory, and in this ape man, they, they don't call it Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but this this monster, this hairy monster, kills one of the trappers. The other one flees and barely escapes with his life. And it's like, oh, oh okay. Wow. So he knows how to tell a monster yarn. He sure does. Yeah. So yeah. But you know yeah. how he probably ran into those piranha in the first place was he went down there and he said, show me your bully fish. <laughs> <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. He was an interesting cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, that anecdote about uh, Roosevelt has led to a lot of urban legends uh, related to the piranha. My um, husband grew up in Colorado and he said that there was a rumor going around at his school, something about piranhas being able to attack uh, cows. And so I, I'm assuming that's where that story I comes think so. from. Yeah, yeah. Not sure if you're aware of any other interesting urban legends related to the piranha. Well, I mean, like, I guess I should say that as much as I think the rumors about feeding frenzies are way overplayed, there are people that I deeply respect and people who study these things, who are fish biologists, who, you know, would definitely say to stay away from, like, drying out pools where they knew piranhas were. And, you know, there is some bit of truth to the Roosevelt story of where, you know, piranhas tend to be the things that are tough enough and scrappy enough to survive in these pools that are drying up. There are stories from the Llanos in Venezuela where you know, they had these kind of borrow pits from where they had like excavated and dredged to build like a weir and a road. And so there were these kind of deep pits off to the side of that of where they kind of, you know, would dump the rest of the stuff that they wouldn't use for the road. And, you know, the water goes up and down a lot. And so those would flood and fishes would go in there and then they get trapped. And everybody that I've talked to from that area would say, you know, don't go into those pits a certain time of the year and they'd say oh you'd see like half-eaten birds on the side of them you know so i think there's probably something to that but i think it's probably Mm. so rare and again as far as the documented science goes there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of support for any of that but yeah and in, in terms of other urban legends about piranhas i can't really think of some there's some wild thing about a paku in sweden or something like an introduced species like feeding on a bather on a swimmer i've never been able to really tell if that's based in truth but how do i say this politely like you can imagine that if you're swimming nude as a man and pakus eat fruit there might be things that they might think are fruit dangling off of the human and so i've heard this rumor before i'm not ever sure if it's been qualified or tested for its veracity but i think that's the only other kind of urban paku <laughs> piranha thing that i've ever heard of i i hope i said that in like a pg way <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that was good. I think I'm just sort of digesting that story. It's kind of ooh, that's a that's something <laughs> intended with that. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pun delivered apathetically, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The origin of this Swedish story is this. In 2013, a newspaper called The Independent released a story about Paco being found in Sweden. And in that story, which also came from a press release, it was called a testicle-eating fish. This is not actually based on reality, but when they looked at the source for that claim, it pointed back to a newspaper article in a different paper, this time the notorious newspaper The Sun, which was obviously not a real article, but rather a press release from the TV series River Monsters, where the host claimed that the Paku fish local in the Papua New Guinea area had actually eaten the testicles off people and killed them. This is not true. It is an urban legend. While these fish probably could damage your testicles, there's no case on file of that having happened. But... If you want to know about fish and genitalia dangers, stay tuned because in the future of Monster Talk, it looks like we're going to be going there. be honest, a lot of people encounter piranha in America first, not through fish tanks or science shows, but, you know, through movies. Especially I'm thinking of Piranha and Piranha 2. I'm sure that I have to assume there's been some sci-fi channel Piranha NATO or something like that. I don't oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so have you watched any of these movies? Is there any accuracy to them at all? I mean, especially I think I, Piranha, wasn't Piranha 2 the one that James Cameron did? It was like 3D or something. I don't remember. It's, Okay, so my memory failed me. James Cameron actually worked on Piranha 2, but was fired before the film was even close to being finished. And he now sort of disregards that as being his, quote, first film as a director. And there's actually five films in the Piranha series. Piranha in 1978, Piranha 2, The Spawning in 1982, Piranha again, and not Piranha again, but just Piranha in 1995, Piranha 3D in 2010, and then Piranha 3, cleverly, Double D in 2012. You might enjoy these films you probably won't. I think that might be I right. I think I have seen Piranha 3D back before I even started working on Piranhas. And I don't remember much, but I remember, I think, the basis being, like, there was some, like, previously thought extinct piranha in America, like, in the U.S. that was, I don't know, trapped in caves underwater or something. I mean, piranhas don't get nearly that big, and... The one, you know, very large, like fossil species that we discussed before didn't get nearly that large. And and so, you know, we talked about the hyena on the savanna like example. I think piranhas aren't really the predators that people make them out to be. And what I really like about that savanna example, and I think a better way to maybe contextualize who piranhas are and the jobs that they fill and what, where they live is if you think about the savanna, you know, you think of the lion as being the predator, you think of the hyena as being a scavenger, you think of the antelope as being like the herbivore, even though we all know that, you know, hyenas kill a lot more and like lions steal their meat, you know, like yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, again, I'm like solidly like team hyena. <laughs> um, the interesting thing is, is piranhas and pakus, I should say, fill all of those roles, right? They are the scavengers, they're the, the predators, they're also the things that are eating the plants and distributing the seeds. And so I like I've gotten off track a little bit. But I think what I like about that example is it's always easier for us apes to sort of understand sort of like a mammal like example. And I think what's so fascinating to me about this family of fishes is that the diversity of jobs that they fill is equal to so many different families that you'd see on the savannah. Right. You've got big cats. You've got hyenas. You've got 
an ungulate of some sort. And in the Amazon, a bunch of those same roles are being filled by essentially the same group of fishes. Well, you know they're going to be capable. Look how much time they spend in school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of tooth in that, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I sort of got off track there, but did that sort of get at what, like what you were asking? Yeah, you did. And I mean, and I think the big takeaway there is movies aren't real, but that these fish shouldn't be feared so much as admired for their diverse abilities. Yeah. And, and the things they provide us, I mean, not everything is important simply because it provides a use to humans. Right. And it would be a like, very utilitarian view. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a fish nerd, so I know that not everyone can appreciate the inner beauty of fish like I can. But, you know, if you do want to take that like utilitarian perspective, like, again, going back to, you know, how folks eat these fishes, but they also depend on that fish to, you know, provide for the trees that provide them wood to build their homes or the plants that help them, you know, relax a little bit. You know, like those are those fishes are integral to the health of the rainforest, to the health of those communities. That's what I think is so cool about them. So we've established that uh, piranhas aren't the predators that people think they are, but it's left me wondering, do piranhas have predators themselves? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, small piranhas, I mean, the Amazon's a rough place. You know, small piranhas occasionally get eaten by, like, bigger piranhas, but there's also a host of other you know, fishes that eat smaller fishes that are around. So if you've ever heard of, you know, like peacock bass, stuff like that, they'll eat small piranhas. Cayman eat piranhas. Some of like the, uh, you know, like water going birds, like egrets and stuff will eat piranhas. I, I'm sure jaguars would. I assume piranha jaws, they can't penetrate caiman skin, can they? Probably not. That's a really good question. It would be interesting to find that out. I mean, it, Not know, for the Cayman. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, but I mean, I would imagine that a Cayman probably, like, I would bet on that. Yeah, I, I would bet on the Cayman yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but I'm yeah. very curious. So yeah. We, yeah. I think we just need to put um, our grant proposal together. We got a couple of good cases here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you know, like the otters eat them too. So, I mean, oh, there right. are a lot of things that eat piranhas. So they're definitely not the top of the food chain. You know, larger individuals are, are probably up there, but there's always a bigger thing that's going to eat you. There you go. So interesting. Yep. Till you get to the top of the food chain, the Mapinguari. What's that? <laughs> that's a deep cut cryptid joke for our listeners. Yay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> that one went way over my head. I'm sorry. It's, it's the, the Mapinguari is um, an alleged uh, giant. Some people think it's a, a giant sloth that's still around. It's more of a folklore creature. It's got like a belly mouth in its belly and in its face. Its feet are on backwards. It's got all kinds of things that should be an obvious clue. It, it's just folklore. But they are uh, supposed to be down there and quite scary. Uh, yeah. Anyway, not important. Cool. But it is, well, certainly on, on topic for our show, though. So I, I'll, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we'll leave that in. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, people obviously do eat piranha. I mean, which yeah. I, but mm-hmm. if you, because of their sharp teeth, uh, like, does that make them, are, do, are they impervious to being caught on a hook or do you catch them? Like, do you net fish or do you net spear fish, fish yeah. or how do you get them? 
Yeah. So I've caught them in seines, which are like a net that you pull by hand. I've caught them in gill nets. I've caught them on hook and line. I've seen people fish for them with bow and arrow. So yeah, there's definitely a wide variety of ways you can get them. Pakus taste absolutely delicious. I don't think I've ever eaten piranha knowingly. That might not be true. I just can't quite remember. But if you think of a fish that eats nothing but fruit all day, they're just delicious. It sounds, I mean, <laughs> kind of literally heavenly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So folks definitely eat them. And uh, yeah, if you ever go to Brazil or Colombia and you, you know, ask for cachama or tambaqui and you'll get like a big steak or a whole fish and they are delightful. I would think a lot of Americans would balk at the idea of eating a piranha just because of that folkloric. Yeah, that's more for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've heard that they can cut through smaller hooks. And so when I fished for them, we use a pretty serious hook and we use a steel like leader. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. So that's the practical answer. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that that just about uh, sums it up. We've just got one final question. Uh -huh. that we like to ask all of our guests, and yeah. that is, what's your favorite monster? You know, I've been thinking about this since you, like, brought that up, and a couple things popped up in my mind. And so one, I'm going to butcher how to say this correctly, but it's the Mokulamembe. Mokili Mabimbe. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Yes. There we go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I watched some sort of movie when I was a kid about that thing. Oh, Baby, and The Lost Legend? Ba yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. And I just thought it was so cool. And I mean, you know. You like, were correct. Like, <laughs> yeah. The Congo would be, I mean, that's where I would hide a sauropod, you know. So I think that's really, really neat. I think that would be such a cool thing to find out if it exists or not. But I think that's really, really cool. I think yeah. the other thing that I only just now thought about after you brought up the you know, weird giant sloth. Oh, the map, the map and Guari. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. There are these stories in South America of, of these things that are shapeshifters and the name changes depending on which like group of folks you're working with. So in Peru, there's a shapeshifting thing. It's kind of like a vampire. And during the day they look like the dolphins that live in the river and then at night mm -hmm. they come out on the land they shapeshift into like a human form and then sort of like a siren like attract people to the water where they drown it this is the boto encantado or the enchanted dolphin and i'll put some links in the show notes for that similarly if you go to southern guyana there's this beautiful savanna in the southern part of guyana and the wapashana are like one of the nine tribes that you know, that live in that part of the world. And I remember going down there for the first time to do field work. And I kept seeing like the kids in the schools would draw these like half Jaguar, half human things. Mm -hmm. And I asked about it. And apparently the legend is around there that are, there are these shape shifting, like wear Jaguars that, you know, are like, you know, live in the deep protected parts of the jungle and they, you know, eat people. And so, yeah, in sort of like a, like a werewolf, like the South American take on werewolves, 
like exactly what you said about the slop. Like, yeah. brought that up in my mind. <laughs> those are, and it's those weird. Are cool. Both awesome, though. I love that. Yeah. 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 And it's weird how many different places you'll go with different peoples who presumably have not had a whole lot of contact. And there's a similar kind of story of some sort of shape-shifting thing. Where jaguar legends are very common in South and Central America. I'll put some links in the show notes to that. But the one in Guiana is probably referring to a Kanaima, I believe is how it's pronounced. I might be wrong on that, but it's K-A-N-A-I-M-A. I'll put, again, links in the show notes. Thanks. And I just never thought of a where jaguar, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but you've inspired thousands of role yeah. players are now rolling one up. So there you go. What's yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's scary, man. Jaguars like, are horrible. And I meant characters, not doobies. Just let me be clear there. <laughs> Depends. Uh, it's a role-playing yeah. joke, people. Come on. Okay. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about these fascinating animals with us. Thank you, too. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I think we learned a lot. Absolutely. We had a lot of preconceived ideas about piranhas. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Matthew Coleman of the University of Michigan's Paleontology Museum and the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts, discussing the fascinating fish known as piranha. Check the show notes for further reading. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next-level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Ben Franklin's World, Infamous America, and Legends of the Old West. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, we thank you for making us part of your listening life. been a Monster House presentation.